Welcome to the Interconnect Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, thanks, Pete. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing good. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have an episode for you on the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery, or the ABOS. We have invited two guests on to speak about their work with the ABOS, as well as the role of the ABOS largely within our field. First, we invited on Dr. April Armstrong. April is a shoulder and elbow surgeon and is currently the chairman at Penn State, and she's the president-elect of the ABOS and is the chair of the ABOS Written Examinations and Graduate Medical Education Committee. April, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. And next, we have Dr. David Martin, who currently serves as the Executive Medical Director of the ABUS. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I wanted to get started by asking each of you how you became involved with the ABUS. So, April, how, how did this start for you? How did you first become involved with this organization? It was, um, I'm going into my sixth year now as a Board of Director, and so I remember getting a call from Larry Marsh. Um, about almost six years ago where he um, had indicated that I had been nominated for the ABOS board and um, and then subsequently um, informed me that I had been elected as a board of directors. So I do think that um, uh, it probably was related to a lot of the work that I've been doing with the um, AOA and involvement with resident education. And so it's been uh, truly an honor to be involved. And, um, and so I think all those that were uh, involved with the uh, with the recruiting and and also the um, the election. And how about you, David? How long have you been involved with the ABOS? How did you first get involved? Well, I've been involved in with the ABOS since the early 2000s, and uh, I would uh, credit my mentor Chris Harner, who around that time was uh, starting to look into subspecialty certification in orthopedic sports medicine. And I assisted in question writing and then got involved in helping the ABOS uh, with the oral examinations and various other uh, volunteer positions. And I was elected to the board as a director in uh, 2005 and uh, served on the board for 10 years. And then shortly after uh, leaving the board, uh, the executive medical director position uh, came open. And uh, actually, Larry Marsh uh, also called me then and thought I might be interested. And uh, so I'm now the um, executive medical director there. I do that four days a week uh, at work at the board and uh, still maintain my practice at Wake Forest uh, one day per week. So it's, uh, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be involved in the board certification process. I think as professionals, we're given the opportunity to self-regulate, and I think we should take that very seriously, and that's the work of the board. Let me ask both of you, and this might be a, a pretty simple question, but I think a lot of surgeons, especially later on in their career, or maybe even early on, wondered this, and you guys are gonna have the best perspective. Why do we need the ABOS? April, let's start with you. Why do we need the ABOS? Well, uh, one of our primary missions is to protect the public. 
And so um, the ABOS is really the uh, certifying board to demonstrate to the public that uh, orthopedic surgeons um, in our nation um, have met certain standards with respect to their skills and their knowledge and their behavior. And so it really um, signifies to the public who can then look up their surgeon to show that they have the stamp of approval um, really that they, they meet the expectations um, that we would really expect for anyone treating our friends or our family. Um, so I think that's our primary role. And David, what are your thoughts? What would you say to surgeons who question, why do we need the ABOS? Sure, I, I think that's a great question and it's one that we get uh, very often. And I, I think I would start at the same place that April did. Uh, our really our founding principles were to serve the best interest of the public and our patients uh, and uh, our profession. And the wisdom of the Academy and the AOA back in the early 1900s to look at orthopedic surgery as a profession in a field and decide that a separate body was needed to look at the qualifications and the preparation uh, that orthopedic surgeons went through to get to uh, the practice in the field, I think was uh, a, a very bold move and showed a lot of wisdom to create a separate independent organization. And I, I really feel that uh, while some people would say, well, you know, I'm a practicing orthopedic surgeon, I'm doing the right thing, I keep up with the literature and I, uh, you know, attend meetings and do the best for my patients. Uh, that may all be true, but I think if the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery stepped out of this role, someone else would step in. And as I said before, we've been given the opportunity as professionals to self-regulate. And I think our programs are for orthopedic surgeons by orthopedic surgeons. And I think I would say that someone is going to look at certification and board certification or some type of regulation in our field. And I believe strongly that that ought to be done by a group of dedicated orthopedic surgeons who have a lot of experience in our field. And that's exactly what we have on our board of directors. So now, David, you described a group of orthopedic surgeons. Tell us a little bit about the structure of, of the organization. Is there, there's, I mean, you've mentioned that you're an executive director. You were on the board previously. How big is the board? How's the board composed? How does, how does, how does that, how does that entity take place? Sure. That's a great question. And uh, we are an independent organization separate from the Academy. Uh, and we are, uh, basically served by a national board of directors and that april is a member of our board of directors that includes 20 orthopedic surgeons who serve a 10-year term and we have one public member who serves a renewable three-year term or really a six-year term so our board of directors is is 21 members they serve on a volunteer basis they're all uh the orthopedic surgeons are practicing orthopedic surgeons and they participate in all the same board certification processes. So they set our direction, they set our strategic plan, and, and look at all of our programs. Then in Chapel Hill, we have our, our board offices, 
Uh, we have been remote for a lot of the time over the past year and a half, although we now have a, a hybrid work uh, plan that uh, started just this month. But we have 12 staff members, and I am the executive medical director, and then we have various staff members in fields of certification, in fields of uh, graduate medical education, uh, program uh, uh, directors, those types of things, communication. And uh, we carry out the work of the board. So that that is the full-time job for those of us who are there in Chapel Hill, and there are 12 of us. And then we also uh, enlist consultants, uh, the National Board of Medical Examiners, uh, the um, uh, American Board of Medical Specialties helps us. We have outside uh, legal help, uh, outside IT help uh, through a company called Web Data Solutions in Chicago. So we do uh, use consultants for a lot of our work, but that's the basic structure. And in in doing that, we serve the approximately 30,000 orthopedic surgeons who are uh, in the United States and are board certified. So now it sounds like April, then you're one of 21 orthopedic surgeons. You said you're five years in, so you're probably halfway through that term. From your perspective, what has this been? I mean, I understand it's a volunteer thing, so I'm sure you're, it's a lot of time for, lo for no pay. Tell us, tell us what you do on the board. Um, so each of uh, the board members is um, appointed to different committees. So we have um, various committees, an oral board exam committee, written exam committee, GME committee, credentialing committee. Um, and then there's other subgroups that we, uh, there's a research committee and other subgroups. So I've been mostly involved, as you, when you firstly come on um, elected, you are on all of, a, a lot of the committees just so you can see the structure of the board. But then in your second year, you're really relegated to specific committees. So I've been mostly involved with credentials, written committee, as well as the GME committee. So the written um, committee, this is really for the written board examination. So this is a certifying um, part one exam that the residents will sit for in July. And um, there's a pretty robust process in developing that um, exam. And it takes about a year or a little over a year to develop that exam. Um, and then as far as the credentialing committee, we meet on a regular basis. And this is where we review uh, concerns raised to the board about some of our um, our uh, candidates and our members. Um, and then we also have the, um, the, uh, the GME committee, which has been um, really involved with developing um, standards for um, knowledge, skills, and behavior um, and measuring resident performance. And so this has been a project that really started off the ground about a year before I started on the board. And uh, we've been collaborating with the AOA and CORD. Um, and we're at the point of onboarding um, hopefully all of our residency programs, which is about 197 across the nation, to, uh, to really implement the, the um, measurement tools that we've developed through the Knowledge, Skills, and Behavior Program. And I could go into more details, but um, I'll maybe stop at that point. One question that I think a lot of us are wondering um, is about the structural changes that ABOS has recently made for maintenance of certification. I think many of us are um, have been excited about some of these changes. 
Can you tell us a little bit about what has changed with the MOC in the last um, several years and what drove this change? How do you think it's working out? And do you can uh, see that continuing uh, forward? David, let's start with you. Uh, sure, that's a, that's a great question. And uh, what I would start with is to say, you know, maintenance of certification, uh, you hear many people say it's very onerous, it's hard to understand, and uh, hard to follow. And what I would say is that we've tried to streamline and simplify it, and really it's not all that complicated. It's essentially we look at it as four parts. So an orthopedic surgeon uh, has to have professional standing. So we look at an orthopedic surgeon's licensure. They have to hold a valid state medical license and have hospital admitting and surgical privileges. Uh, we look at their continuing education as the second part. So an orthopedic surgeon in a 10-year cycle has to do 240 uh, Category 1 credits of orthopedic-related CME, and we'd like 40 of those to be self-assessment examination credits. Uh, we can get into that if you'd like to talk about that more. Uh, the third part is a knowledge assessment. Uh, up until about five or six years ago, that was basically an examination, uh, and that's some sort of knowledge check uh, once every 10 years. And then the fourth part is um, improvement in practice, and in every 10-year cycle, we uh, obtain an application, and using that application and also using a zip code list, we obtain peer review uh, from an orthopedic surgeon's peers, and we also collect a case list that involves either nine months or 75 uh, consecutive surgical cases, and we evaluate that. that. That's the whole MOC program. And, you know, I would say if someone said, you know, hey, what kind of a surgeon is Dr. Frank? You know, if I, you know, knew your, about your hospital privileges and your license, I knew you were keeping up uh, with your continuing medical education, you had some sort of knowledge test, knowledge check, uh, and then I looked at your cases and talked to your peers, I think that's a pretty good way to tell uh, our patients that particular surgeon is uh, meeting our standards. The things, that, the things that have changed the most are in that knowledge assessment, and uh, that generally has been a multiple choice examination. Uh, when I came on the board six years ago, we had a general examination, and uh, we had sports, hand, uh, spine, and adult reconstruction. Uh, and so you had to pick one of those and take that exam, or you could do an oral examination, uh, which uh, is based on your own cases. Uh, orthopedic surgeons told us they didn't like, uh, for instance, if they're an adult reconstructive practice, they didn't want to study pediatric orthopedics again and take that general exam. So what we did was created practice profile examinations in each of the subspecialties uh, in orthopedic surgery. And we started by getting groups of experts together and putting together blueprints for those examinations. So what should a practicing uh, shoulder and elbow surgeon know? And we made that blueprint first, and then we built examinations based on those blueprints. So now you can choose an examination in your subspecialty and see only questions uh, from that subspecialty. And the blueprints or, you know, when we're ready to take an exam, uh, you know, the first question I ask when someone says there's going to be a test, I'd say, what's on it? And that's, those are the blueprints that are published on our website. Um, so that was one way we tried to meet people at their practice. Uh, still in all, uh, you know, uh, uh, a test 
uh, in a testing center. Uh, you know, it's a high-stress situation. And as we looked into adult learning principles and honestly looked at what other boards were doing, uh, we came to the conclusion uh, that we should look into a longitudinal assessment type program. And so that caters more to adult learning, allows people to do that on their own and choose uh, how and where they want to be examined. And that program is now entering its fourth year. Uh, it's called the uh, ABOS Web-Based Longitudinal Assessment Program. And that involves uh, knowledge sources, which are generally journal articles, uh, and there were are anywhere from 150 to 200 of those that we put on our website uh, each year. Each orthopedic surgeon, if they would like to participate in that pathway, can choose 15 of those and study those. And then in a six-week period in April and May, uh, we administer two questions per knowledge source. It's a very simple platform. Uh, uh, orthopedic surgeons can go at their own pace and they need to score 24 out of 30 questions correct. The questions are open book, and uh, that involves a quality year. Uh, in the 10-year cycle, if they obtain five quality years, that satisfies that knowledge assessment portion. So the, that's been the biggest change. We now have uh, last year 14,000 people participated in that program, and so that's been very successful, and people really like that, being able to choose a knowledge source, a journal article, or a practice guideline, study that, and then have questions directly from that source. So that, that's been the main change. And April may want to talk about some of the changes uh, that we're making in the area of graduate medical education, because that's uh, also been very exciting. Yeah, well, April, why don't you tell us a little bit about that um, and tell us where we're going with, with uh, that aspect of, um, and the ABOS or involvement there. Sure. So um, this was the GME committee work that I was just talking about, and uh, this was in collaboration with the Academy and the AOA and CORD, and so it's called the Knowledge, Skills, and Behavior Program. And so the knowledge portion of this, we've actually worked alongside with the Academy, and we've integrated the blueprints with the OITE exam, which is the in-training exam. Um, with the blueprint for the part one examination. So we've aligned with that. There was a group meeting um, last February to, um, to develop that blueprint together um, with a lot of experts in every different subspecialty in the room. And uh, we also integrated um, questions as well with the OITE. So the um, OITE uh, subgroup that writes questions submits them to the board. We then place those questions on our part one exam to vet them out. Those questions that perform well will then um, show up on OITE examinations. And then those questions will not be shared back to the residents. Um, traditionally, all questions were re, um, sent back to the residents so that they could learn um, from their mistakes and from things that they knew well. But at this point, we're holding back these questions because these will then act as kind of standard setting questions across many years to come so that we can see how residents have performed year to year. And so it really helps us to identify standards so that we can actually then compare how residents perform across our nation um, and then also um, set expectations for the residents and programs. 
for the skills uh, program. This was really initially developed by Anne Van Heest and a subgroup with the uh, with CORD and AOA. And essentially, they looked at the uh, feasibility of a, a surgical skills um, tool called the OP tool. So it was a combination of two different tools that were already out in the literature and that had been validated. And so um, they ran a pilot study across 16 different programs and were able to show that the uh, tool, so this is a, basically a web-based tool where the residents request faculty to um, evaluate them right at time zero. So within 48 hours of them doing a surgical case, the resident can get feedback about this case and there's different various criteria. And those um, then go into a database um, and a dashboard for the residents so they can then track their performance. And um, Anne and her group, their work has shown that you can show that there's performance improvement across PGY level years. So for instance, a PGY5 will perform at a higher level than a PGY2, which is what we would expect, but the tool is able to show that performance as well. Uh, the third part of the program is the professional behavior program. And this is a program where I was involved with, again, it was a collaborative group with AOA and CORD, and there were 18 different programs that ran the pilot. And so essentially, this was a new tool that we needed to develop. And so it's a five domain tool where we look at different aspects of behavior. And um, we ran the pilot to see if it really would identify the outliers. So those residents that actually weren't necessarily meeting the behavioral standards um, that their colleagues were. And uh, we showed that 97% of the residents actually performed pretty well. So they would score, uh, it was on a five-point Likert scale, they would score four or five. So in general, we suspected this would be the case, that most residents are going to perform well with behavior. But the purpose of it was really to identify those 3% um, percent of residents that weren't performing as well. And now that it's kind of divided up into their domains, it also um, helps programs target performance improvement um, you know, um, programs for the residents. So if you had issues with communication, then you could you would know where the behavioral issue was and you can help develop them within that, that domain. Um, so it's really a full package for um, the knowledge, skills, and behavior. And um, we are hoping to get all of the residency programs on board with this. Um, eventually, we want to look at big data. This is something that if people aren't aware that the general surgeons have actually been um, been using a tool called Simple, and they've shown um, that they can track uh, performance and they can show that that residents by the time of their um, their residency programs that they are they actually are in fact competent. So um, I think it was really um, a great vision of the board. They they had um, recognized just before I came on the, um, with the board that. When we sign off on a resident before they go into, before they sit for their part one examination, they, um, it really, really was based on time um, and it wasn't really based on performance. So the whole idea is to get away from necessarily that time-based performance and more competency-based performance. I love the idea of getting away from just, well, you've been here for five years, so we might as well call you a surgeon. So that's, it's, it's such a cool thing. It's complicated, it sounds like, and I think we're all curious to see how it's going to play out. It certainly sounds like it's going to be better than what we're doing now. One of the questions I wanted to ask is about the way COVID has affected the way the ABUS 
performs the in-person test. I know it's forced the ABUS to change to, to, to make that transition from board eligible to sort certified, often called step two or the oral boards virtual. Tell us, do you see that shift to virtual being permanent? How is that how is that gone? How is that gonna go gonna play out in the future? What do you think, David? Uh, that's a great question. We were uh, pressed by the uh, pandemic, uh, but uh, at the same time, we felt like, uh, and our board felt that, you know, if board certification is important in normal times, it's even more important during uh, a pandemic. So we felt like we really needed to make the effort to uh, continue with all of our programs, and we have been able to do that. The oral examination, uh, as you know, consists of uh, an evaluation of an orthopedic surgeon's uh, own cases. So we look at a case list, we choose 12 cases, and what that has come to many of us uh, who have uh, somewhat more gray hair than uh, others remember carrying um, a big pile of records and a big pile of x-rays to the Palmer House in Chicago to take the oral examination. and that has now all been digitized, so uh, the 12 cases are all uploaded onto a platform. And when it became clear that we were not going to be able to uh, meet in person, uh, we did uh, what we called a case-based evaluation. And we had piloted that in Chicago based on uh, uh, those uploaded digital records so that while uh, individuals were taking the oral exam in person. We had other examiners look over their uh, case documents and their case images and score them, and we were able to correlate those fairly well with performance on the oral exam. So that's what we did uh, in 2020 for uh, the whole group is look at their records uh, without them being present and using uh, that the, uh, experience that we had from uh, several years prior to that, we were able to uh, move a group of those people to uh, a passing uh, position. A second group we looked at with um, a virtual oral exam uh, done by Zoom, uh, and then we had a third stage to that where all of that information was then reviewed by our directors. Uh, this year, in 2021, we did that uh, case-based evaluation in July, uh, and I would give a shout-out to all of our volunteers. We had uh, nearly uh, 400 examiners uh, go through um, uh, cases and an immense number of documents and images and score all those all in a one-week period in July, which is uh, pretty amazing. Uh, orthopedic surgeons have really stepped up. and. Uh, we were then able to pass a group of people, and the people that were left over from both of those um, experiences in both 2020 and 2021, uh, we brought back to Chicago for a standard oral exam that we did last month uh, at the Palmer House. And we did that with um, required vaccination, social distancing, uh, masking, and actually were successful in getting uh, slightly over 500 examinees through that process and had nearly 200 examiners come to Chicago and help us with that process. So um, we're proud of that. And uh, I know that doesn't answer your question as to what we're going to use moving forward. Um, 
but uh, not to dodge that question, our plan for 2022 right now is to have a standard oral examination in Chicago in July. Obviously, we're um, watching the pandemic as everyone else is, so that may change, but that is our plan. And then over the next year, we really need to evaluate what parts of uh, the, our uh, pandemic uh, uh, modifications worked really well and what didn't work really well and what we're comfortable with and what we're not comfortable with, and then apply those going forward in the future. So I think certainly we have learned a whole lot about how to evaluate someone with that, that particular platform, and that will be useful in uh, all parts of our, our, our board certification process. Uh, and how that relates to the oral exam, those are questions that we're going to start answering uh, in the coming months. Certainly kudos to the board for overcoming what sounds like a huge challenge to try and shift to virtual, shift back to in-person with vaccinations, et cetera, et cetera. Let me ask you, April, you know, you're the president-elect. You're coming into a leadership position here. As we've heard about a lot of changes to maintenance certification at the graduate medical, edu medical education level you know, the step two level, what other changes do you see coming in the future for the board? Um, that's a really good question, as uh, David would say. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, like most people uh, in most of their areas, whether it's medicine or not, I think they're, we're going to think again about how we do things. Um, so David just talked about how we had changed completely the oral um, examination. I think that um, for the written examination, the same thing. We changed a lot of processes, um, and we now implemented some virtual aspects that I think will be a permanent um, change for us. Um, so I think that just looking in general about how we do business and how we do things, I think um, I think that's going to certainly be something we focus on. Um, I think that um, one huge transition for us that um, moving forward, we um, after 2023, uh, we will no longer be working with the NBME as far as development of our examination, and so. We um, have um, started working with the ABMF now, and um, so they're going to be now our collaborators with developing our uh, written board examination. So I think that will certainly be a big transition for us, and, um, and I think that there will be a lot of thinking again and relearning and maybe changing some pathways and processes for, for that uh, exam development as well. I think that we still need to really look at um, the maintenance of certification, the um, WLA has been really popular, and because of that, we now have less people who are participating in our subspecialty written examinations, and so this was a big push developing the subspecialty examinations when I just started the board, and as you may or may not have known, we did not have a shoulder and elbow subspecialty exam. And um, so it was a big change to develop all of these subspecialty exams, but at the same time, WLA then evolved. And um, so now we need to rethink, I think, how, um, how we do business with, with respect to maintenance of certification and maybe 
in the future that the um, it's possible that subspecialty exams will be offered in less frequency or maybe some of them will be even phased out and I think that that is something that um, that we'll just have to watch and monitor we want to be um, thoughtful about what our diplomates um, you know what their wishes are and what they um, you know what what their opinions are about means of certification and we have sent out surveys to get opinions and that was how we developed the WLA where we got um, opinions from our diplomates so I think that we'll have to continue to monitor and watch that and then obviously with GME uh, this is going to be I think uh, we have a, a huge potential to look um, at orthopedic programming across the nation and so once we get big data we can actually really start to look at, you know, are we able to very fairly set orthopedic standards and really push the needle with competency-based training? Um, so I, I think that if we all work together and we get data to show, you know, how residents perform, and we've we've made some assumptions through, you know, educated groups deciding what core, what should be core surgical pre procedures, what should be procedures where you only get exposure, we will have the potential to really look at that and see what, what residents are actually doing out there in the in the real world and, and are they getting the same exposure across all programs to different surgical procedures. So I think that um, competency-based training um, is, I think, going to look a lot different uh, and, uh, and I've you know, again, I'll give a shout out to all of the partners because, as you heard, there's all of our societies are partnering um, with us on that the project. One thing Pete and I both wanted to ask you guys about, and I think this has become more intriguing just due to media um, and uh, and what we can see spreading like wildfire through all channels of social media and mainstream media, et cetera. There's been a high profile case in neurosurgery or high profile surgeon in neurosurgery um, with the whole Dr. Death podcast and now um, TV show. And uh, for anyone who is not aware, um, just as a brief summary, this is about a, an actual real life neurosurgeon who somehow got through all the metrics and all the boards and all the tests that everyone gets through and became a, a full practicing neurosurgeon, but had severe complications resulting in morbidity, mortality, and, and yet continue to be passed into system without necessarily being policed. And I think, um, you know, neurosurgery is not too different from orthopedic surgery, particularly as it relates to spine, but just in general, it's a surgical field with high stakes. And I think we all feel that one role for the ABOS is to prevent cases and surgeons like this from slipping through. How does the ABOS prevent the next doctor death from being an orthopedic surgeon? David, let's start with you. Uh, sure, that's a great question. I, I would tell you that um, uh, that particular individual was was not board certified uh, and did not go through the board certification process at the American Board of Neurosurgery. Uh, although it has, uh, uh, it's a case that's garnered a lot of attention. And if you go to the American Board of Neurosurgery's uh, uh, website, uh, they they have information there concerning that case, but. I would tell you that we are trying to put those checks and balances in place, and certainly that's uh, uh, something with the knowledge, skills, and behavior program during residency, because that is uh, a surgeon who did not do the requisite number of cases uh, to finish a residency program, and yet because there were really no tools to, to help program directors, 
make judgments uh, about uh, individuals. Uh, that's a person who sort of slipped through that area. And then I think um, on the other side, I think we really need to educate uh, patients and institutions about the value of board certification. And that certainly um, is a, a glaring example. But if you look at um, state medical um, license actions, um, and this is not specific to uh, orthopedic surgery, uh, actually in general surgery, um, surgeons who are board certified and recertified have less state medical licensure actions and they are less severe for that group. So I think um, that I think that case is exactly why we need uh, uh, really to, again, self-regulate. And our goal uh, as we move forward, there needs to be a hurdle there. If we don't jump over the hurdle and educate not only uh, uh, our patients but institutions that board certification is meaningful, um, uh, I think those things can happen. And so we really need to educate uh, those groups. We have a patient-facing website that orthopedic surgeons can uh, give to their patients. It's called mycertifiedorthopedicsurgeon.org, mycertifiedorthopedicsurgeon.org. And that explains what orthopedic surgeons go through to become board certified and what it means to be board certified. It has various videos there from uh, uh, patients and also videos about uh, what it takes to be board certified. And so I think our goal for people who are doing the right thing is to streamline the system. And with electronic medical records, um, we, we, I see a future where we can, we can streamline the process. And if someone's doing the right thing, the hurdle is going to be very low. But I think uh, that case you point out uh, shows us the value of having a hurdle that will trip those people. And that's our challenge. That's, that's our challenge as a board is to figure out how to make the hurdle, um, you know, high enough so that the right people trip over it, but low enough so that we don't overburden uh, people who are doing the right thing. So I hope that was a reasonable answer. That was great. Honestly, both of you guys have been awesome in answering our questions. And I'm hopeful that the average practicing orthopedic surgeon, when they listen to this, will have a greater appreciation for all the work the board is doing and all, honestly, the good that you guys are doing and protecting protecting our, our patients. So I want to thank both of you for taking the time tonight. Um, this was really valuable, I think, for our listeners. And we know you're both busy, so we really value your time. Great. Thank, thank you, you very much. Uh, yeah, it's a great. Uh, it's a privilege to be here. And I would just encourage people, if you have questions about board certification, please don't hesitate to call us. If you have suggestions about how we can do what we do better, uh, please don't complain to your colleagues. Call me. I'm happy to hear the complaints. But if you have ways you think we can improve things, please call because we are uh, uh, really working hard to um, do things right and uh, um, pay attention to the details. So thank you very much for having us. I want to echo Pete. Thank you both so much for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join us on this incredibly important topic. That's really all the time we have for today's podcast. Again, we want to thank our guests. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.